Americans are capable of achieving extraordinary things when they have the freedom and opportunity to do so. This is American Potential, and here's your host, Jeff Crank. All right, well, thanks for joining us on American Potential. Hey, how would you feel if a government agency came up with a regulation for your job and then told you that you had to cover the cost to pay for it and Congress didn't approve that regulation. Sounds like a bad idea. But in 2020, this bad idea went into effect for a certain part of the fishing industry. Herring fishermen were told they'd have to pay to have a monitor on their boat, and it would cost them on average $710 a day. Now, how many of you could afford to absorb that amount into your budget? Probably not too many. So how did we get here? Two factors. First, the first is the creation of the administrative state, which if you want to hear more about that, check out our episode, which we released earlier this week with Senator Mike Lee. And the second was a landmark Supreme Court case. So back in 1984, Chevron USA Incorporated versus Natural Resources Defense Council, Inc., set legal precedents for courts to defer to the agency's reasonable interpretation unless Congress uh, has a direct has directly spoken about the issue. So on today's podcast, we have Herring Fisherman William Bright and Cause of Action Institute Counsel Ryan Mulvey, who are petitioning the U.S. Supreme Court to hear their case and also talk about the effects that this will have on the herring industry. This is an incredible story. Uh, thank you for joining us. William, thanks Thanks for being here uh, with us today. Hey, thank you, Jeff. Uh, my name is William Bright. Actually, I've been fishing for, I started fishing in 1980. I started herring fishing in 1990, and I purchased my own vessel in 1997. Uh, this is a, this is a very important case to us going forward because it, it is putting a lot of burden on us with the opportunity to maybe even expand into other fisheries. That's why we're very concerned today. Yeah, and I understand you also. Aside from that, you also own a, you own a restaurant as well. Is that right? Uh, yeah, so I'm pretty vertically integrated to the fishing business. Uh, this vessel, the retriever that catches herring, also catches squid. And that vessel actually supplies the bait for my longline vessel, which actually supplies my restaurant, um, which actually we sell retail, wholesale. And we actually, at the end of the day, I take the trash out and put it out. So I figure that I qualify <laughs> as vertically integrated. And I feel that I do have a right to speak on this topic. Yeah, and I, th- I think it's fascinating. And one of the great things about this podcast, and I'll get to this in a minute, is why you chose to fight this battle. Because a lot of people just say, oh, well, it's government regulation. I don't have the time to to deal with it. We'll get to that in a minute. But um, you, you talked about how long you've been a fisherman. Uh, and and how, how have you seen the industry change over that over that time that you've been in, in the fishing business? Well, I've seen a fish. I've seen the whole industry change. When we first started fishing, we were was almost like the Wild West. There was no rules and regulations. And 
And uh, we've seen these regulations just steadily grow and with reason, and they're actually, most of them are needed. But we went from very large quotas, which the government promoted us to get into this fishery. They actually financed us to get into this fishery where the other banks would not. And what we found is that their quotas were overinflated at the time. And the quotas have constantly shrunk. Uh, and sometimes we were probably fishing herring 200 days a year on some years. And then as the quota shrunk and as the environment changes, a lot of the herring are not in the areas where they historically were. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, this new regulation, which I just think is in- incredible, um, when did you when did you first find out about it, and, and what did you think when you when you heard about it? When I first find out, when I first heard about the regulation, it started all the way back in probably 2013 or something about that. Mm-hmm. I really wasn't overly concerned because I felt that there was a, we also had we were a. We were also participating in an observer program that was giving data. We were also appreciating in a study fleet program. We have vessel monitoring systems. And all the science that was uh, come out of this said that we had a very clean fishery. So I wasn't concerned. But then as it grew, I saw the pressure mounting from the environmentalists, including Pew Foundation, that was spelling that. It was spelling trouble for us in the future. Every meeting we went to, they were just arguing. It was just like pressure. I don't believe a National Marine Fishery Service even wanted to institute. It was just outside pressure that kind of forced them to do this. So what was the uh, was the herring industry, was it being monitored before this regulation went into effect? And do you think that that monitoring was effective? Um, way back in the beginning, we've had monitoring probably for 20 years now. And there's a thing called SBRM, that's Standardized Bycatch Reduction Methodology. And what that does, they, they rate each fishery on the amount of observer coverage they should have. And we had observer coverage because the statistics, scientific statistics, say that our fishery has less than 1% bycatch. And that's actually the same as in other places in the world that does a similar fishery. We thought that we were probably going to be clear of that, but that didn't turn out to be the case. Now, why, why was, uh, why was the herring industry in your, in your belief, why was it targeted to now have a hundred percent monitoring rather than uh, this, this previous regulation that they had? Uh, just for the record, so now National Marine Fishery Service, I believe they dropped that to wanting 50%. When they first started, it would look like it was going to be part of an omnibus amendment that was okay. going to be 100. And then okay. National Marine Fishery Service had to match part of the funding for data collection and everything, so they dropped it to 50%. We actually have probably had all along 20% observer coverage when they were paying for it. When they fed, when they decided to do industry-funded observer to match the pressure that was coming from the environmental side, that's why that is why that happened. So, in other words, the regulators were paying for the monitoring before, and then sort of environmental groups kind of stepped in, pushed this issue, and the regulators, uh, you know, sort of bought it. But they've decided that the 
that the monitors have to be paid for by the by the vessels themselves. Is that right? Well, the biggest problem was is that the environmental groups wanted much more observer coverage, and National Marine Fisheries Service couldn't afford it. So then, sure. I remember going to the meetings, and they, you know, the, they were quoting that they found this money. Well, you found that money in my kid's college fund. You found that money in my pension fund. Right. Yes, you found the money, but at what cost? That's the yeah. Problem. Yeah, they just passed it on to you, and 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 on to the consumer. By the way, right. Right. As well. Yeah. Um, are, are there other parts of the fishing industry that are required to have this level of monitoring? Actually, the only other one that has that level is the uh, multi-species in New England. And I believe right now they settled on 80 or 90 percent of their recovery. Mm-hmm. The scary yes. part about this to me is that it's a small percentage right now because the quota has been reduced so much. Requotas are only about I don't know five to ten percent of what they what they were quoting at one time, but now the quotas are slowly starting to come back. And the biggest problem would be if they can do this in this fishery, which we fish thirty days a year, that can expand into the other fisheries where we fish two hundred days a year. Now the guy sitting on my vessel, supposedly collecting data is going to bring in more a year than the guy who actually does all the maintenance on the boat and works all year around. And that's kind of hard to swallow. Yeah. Let's talk about the monitoring real quick. And then I I do want to get to Ryan too, but um, let's talk about the monitoring here. Like what, this is an actual person on the vessel that the government used to pay for. Now, now they're requiring the, the, the vessel itself or the, or you to pay for this. Um, they're there and they're monitoring. What are they monitoring? What are they looking for? Well, most of the time, I would say in this situation, they're looking to make sure that we are harvesting something we are not, bycatch or in areas that we're not. We are not against monitoring, to be honest with you. Monitoring works for us. If the monitoring is for the right reason, if it's built to, to gather data to use to make uh, quotas or assessments, a lot of the Previous monitors would come on there and they would take size, age, sex samples that we could use to tell the overall health of the fishery. That is totally different to help build our program to make us more sustainable than it is to put somebody on there just for enforcement issues, to watch them kind of just sitting there watching everything you do 24 hours a day and making more than your engineer in the engine room. It's kind of tough. Yeah, and I would say, William, and I want to ask this because I, you know, I, I'm a hunter and I know that most most people who hunt are conservationists because we want that tradition to continue. We want the species to, to continue. And I wanted to ask you about that. I mean, do most of the herring fishermen you know or the, most of the fishermen in general that you know, I mean, they themselves are conservationists. Their livelihood uh, is dependent upon there there being you know plenty of herring in the sea, correct? Well, I'm just like you, Jeff. I'm also a big hunter, a big outdoorsman, but I also know whether it's herring, whether it's deer, elk, or any of the other animals that I harvest, I can only harvest so many. So it's in my best interest to do that as as efficiently as possible. Yeah, and would you th- say that most? fishermen that you know are that way i mean certainly there are other people who 
who maybe don't feel that way. I would think most uh, most U.S. fisher fishermen understand that, that it's a resource that we have to manage and have to manage well. Well, we all we consider this. It's actually we know that this resource is, is owned by everybody, but it's it's our uh, we are kind of the guard on duty and it's our responsibility to take care of it and make it sustainable. My father fished. I mean, my boys fished. They paid their way through college fishing. So for me to be selfish and not have a long-term plan, that I don't know anybody in the fishery that's not taking a long-term plan. At one time, there was a lot of people in the fishery that weren't taking a long-term plan. And fishing is not for everybody. We supply food, but it's an emotional financial roller coaster. We just had five really good years. And the next year, you can literally produce about 20% of what you were. It's definitely not for the faint-hearted. Yeah. Um, let, let me, I want to bring in Ryan Mulvey, Cause of Action Institute uh, Council, uh, Ryan Mulvey. Ryan, I, I talked a little bit, uh, well, first of all, what's your, so what's your involvement in, in this case? I guess let me ask that. Sure. Thanks, Jeff, for, for having me on. Uh, so my colleagues and I at Cause of Action Institute represent uh, Bill and the other fishermen, in, in this case, Loper Bright Enterprises versus uh, Raimondo. Uh, and we have been working with them for a number of years now. Uh, but we've also been involved in monitoring uh, if, uh, the, the, the industry-funded monitoring efforts of the agency back Oh, I want to say to 2016, 2017. Um, this is mm -hmm. not the first fishery where uh, the Department of Commerce has tried to require industry-funded monitoring. Uh, it probably won't be the last. And we see uh, this effort to force regulated parties um, to pay for agency programs when agency funds have dried up, but without any statutory authorization to do so, as a tremendous violation of our constitutional order. At the end of the day, that's what this case is really about, about what a, 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 bureaucrat, a bureaucratic arm uh, of the administrative state can do without congressional authorization. Yeah, I mean, this is this is really important. I mean, it extends to all areas of uh, of really our lives. If you think about it, I talked about a little bit about the Chevron case, and uh, that was pretty landmark Supreme Court case. It, can you explain a little bit more about what the case is and what the effects have been of Chevron? Yeah, sure. So that case facts, and it, uh, I think it's important to keep in mind. Uh, Congress had amended the Clean Air Act, and there was a fight uh, between the parties and the EPA about the meaning of the term source in the statute. Um, so there was, there was the fight over, over the meaning of, of a word that Congress didn't define. And what the court ended up saying, what Justice Stevens said in his opinion, was that when a court uh, receives a case and the intent of Congress in passing a law is clear, then that ends the matter. But when there's ambiguity or silence or there's been a gap intentionally left by Congress in a, in a statute, then what the court should do is defer to the agency's interpretation of the statute to give it deference. And so that's where we get this phrase, Chevron deference. When you have a, a law that seems ambiguous, you defer to the agency's interpretation. Um, 
Well, the problem with that uh, has been that courts, for a variety of reasons, rather than really trying to understand whether Congress has expressed its intent or whether a statute really is ambiguous, just decides to defer to the agency. Right. If there's a fight over meaning, the easier thing to do is to just say, well, you know, the agency has the technical expertise here. We're just going to accept what they say as long as it's reasonable. Right. So that's that's the second. And there has to be a, per, a permissible construction of the statute that the agency is presenting. But for all intents and purposes, agencies have gotten a free pass uh, and it has become over the decades, very difficult uh, to challenge agency regulations because of this deferential standard. At the heart of our fight with Chevron is a concern that the doctrine um, really displaces the proper role of the judiciary, of what courts are supposed to be doing. Courts, in our view, are supposed to tell us what the law says, like what it means Congress writes the law, and the courts tell us what the law says and resolves disputes under under the law. What Chevron has led to is uh, administrative agencies, the administrative uh, state, being able to take laws and effectively legislate on their own through interpretation and then receive deference from the courts. It's the executive not merely executing the law, but elaborating upon the law. And this particular case is a great example of that because we're not really talking about, you know, I I mentioned the facts of the original Chevron case were about the, the definition of the word source. That's not really the kind of fight we have here. Here we have a fight over the authority of the agency to require regulated parties to pay for something. Right to fund an agency program when appropriations have run out. And in a real way, the agency's interpretation of the statute here, the Magnuson-Stevens Act, in attempting to require industry funding, is the agency aggrandizing power to itself. It's saying, Congress hasn't given us enough money, but we're going to get around that by simply forcing the regulated entities to pay for it instead. And that's just offensive uh, to our constitutional order, and it gets wrong the role of the agency in executing the law, and the reliance on Chevron gets the role of the court wrong. So how do you feel? At, at, what what are our chances? I mean, this has a great import, I think, not only on this case, but, you know, this would be precedent, I think, that, that could be followed for forever <laughs> if, if if and it seems like they i mean do you is your argument that that the chevron decision was wrongly decided or it's been wrongly uh, interpreted by the agencies so our principal argument in trying to get the supreme court to accept the case um uh, our principal argument is that the agency has misread the Magnuson-Stevens Act. So before you even get to Chevron, there's a problem here because we don't think the statute authorizes what the uh, agency is trying to do with industry funding. As far as Chevron is concerned, uh, we are asking the court, if they take the case, to overrule it, to overturn Chevron and to tell courts, you can't have this sort of deferential regime. You need to be uh, interpreting the law yourself you need to use your full toolbox of statutory uh, tools of statutory interpretation, and you need to figure out the legal questions yourself. That's your job, court. 
Alternatively, we're asking them to give a little bit of clarification to Chevron uh, as applied here. You mentioned that, uh, well, it's in all honesty, it's difficult to get the court to hear a case. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, most petitions are not accepted, uh, but we're optimistic because there has definitely been, at least at the Supreme Court, what seems like a distancing from Chevron. We've had a couple of cases that implicate Chevron that have been accepted by the court uh, in the past few years. And rather than uh, grapple with the continued relevance of Chevron or whether it should still be the law of the land, the court has instead developed what it has has come to be known as the major questions doctrine. Um, but I, I think there's definitely, we've reached a tipping point where the the court seems poised to want to act on it with the right case. The scholarship uh, in the legal academy is increasingly uh, critical. There are some particular members of the court who are definitely eager to see Chevron go away. Um, and there's a lot of confusion among the courts, among the circuit courts, on how Chevron is even supposed to to really work. Um, and that's that's really bad for rule of law purposes when you have such an important precedent that um, ha- has re- reached such a confused state. So we're optimistic, cautiously, um, but you're right to point out that uh, you know not a lot of cases are accepted. But I think this one, um, you know, if if it is taken and we were to win, the consequences would be profound for the future of the administrative state. Yeah, so, and often the Supreme Court does take cases when circuit courts are divided on, on it. Is, is that the case here? Do you have, yeah, it sounds like you do have circuit courts that have different views of this law. So I think there's a couple of different forms of, of, of splits among the courts. There's not a split in the traditional sense, meaning mm-hmm. one circuit has said, uh, y- Uh, this is allowed and another circuit has said no industry funding isn't allowed. But there have been uh, two other types of splits. So in our case, uh, the district court ruled that the Magnuson-Stevens Act was not ambiguous at all, like we were arguing, and in fact was clear that the agency was given authority to require industry funding. Now, when we appealed that at the D.C. Circuit, we got two more views of the situation. The majority of the panel, two of the three judges, agreed with us that there was ambiguity. So they disagreed with the district court and said, no, the statute is ambiguous, but this is a reasonable interpretation of the statute. Um, The dissent that we had at the circuit court, uh, Judge Walker, he said, no, 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 the statute's not ambiguous at all. Uh, the district court was right about the lack of ambiguity. It was just wrong about the conclusion. It's it's unambiguous that the agency doesn't have the authority to require industry funding. So there we had the same legal doctrine applied by uh, four different judges, and they all reached different interpretations. So that's a real split that speaks to the confusion of how Chevron is supposed to be applied. Yeah, uh, yeah. The, there's a there's another uh, a real quick I'll just mention another case in the first circuit uh, that's also challenging the same regulation and there the court just came out with its opinion last week and they said well we're going to apply Chevron but we're not even going to use this two step uh, uh, 
you know, paradigm that all the courts accept. It doesn't really matter whether it's ambiguous or a reasonable interpretation. It just seems to us that this is permitted. So there you have another sort of split that even further highlights the confusion among the circuit courts and the lack of uniformity in how a legal law, uh, principle is supposed to be applied. Yeah. Now, now, when what's the timeline here? You're petitioning the, the Supreme Court now to hear the case. Is that right? Yeah. So we are fully briefed. Uh, we've had tremendous amicus support, friends of the court, uh, 14 mm-hmm. amicus briefs filed by 39 different organizations, individuals and states. That includes a, a brief by 18 state attorneys general, uh, all of them wanting the court to take the case. It's been fully briefed. The government filed an opposition. We filed our reply. Uh, It's been distributed to the justices, and it's scheduled for conference uh, on the 24th of March. Uh, So that is the first – that's the end of this week uh, as we're recording. Uh, That could be – we could – the court could either decide to take the case, it could deny the case, or it could do what's called a relisting and say we're going to consider this uh, at a future date at another conference. And – you know, that could that could happen multiple times. Um, uh, a relisting in the minds of most uh, Supreme Court watchers suggests that the court is seriously considering it. There may be some disagreement about uh, between the justices as, as to whether the, the case should be accepted. Um, so that, a relisting is like a, a next uh, best outcome after, uh, uh, you know, the petition being granted. But mm-hmm. we'll, we'll see. This could we could the case could either. There could be big developments by the end of the week. Right. Okay. Um, so, William, the, the regulation itself was supposed to go into effect in 2020, but because of COVID, uh, you haven't had to pay for a monitor yet because they, they waived coverage. But it, how will this affect you if the Supreme Court doesn't take the case? To be honest with you, Jeff, right now, it's only a small part of our fishery as to herring. The biggest factor of the president that it sets going forward is with this omnibus amendment, they can up it from 50 back to 100%. They can also move that into other fisheries. That's the biggest thing going forward because we're kind of on the leading edge of this confrontation with them because there's nobody in the fishing business that isn't watching this and wondering that this isn't going to be our future going forward. They have to pay for it. I mean, just like we, what's next? We have to make farmers pay for observers to see how much pesticides. We just went through a pandemic where food was really hard to come from. You would think that we would look at this like we actually supply food. And, you know, how can we keep these guys in business? How can not about how much burden can we put on them and see how they can survive? Yeah. Well, th- this is a really, really important case. I do have to ask this, uh, William. What I mean. I, I kind of alluded to this at the beginning, but when, when something like this happens and a, and a government agency steps in and, and does this, a lot of people just say, well, I'm going to keep my my nose down and my head down and just going to keep fishing and doing my business. But but you seem to have decided that this was a, a fight worth fighting. What What made you want to do that and what drives you to make sure that you see this through? Well, what drove me, to be honest, I just think that what is unfair, I mean, we deal with a lot of regulations and a lot of the regulations are not based on science. We like regulations that are based on science. We are, you know, we try to be a very efficient fishery. And 
I think part of our problem is, is that we're so efficient that we've drawn a lot of attention from the environmentalists and stuff. We produce protein. So my way of thinking is the faster we can go out there and produce this protein and we're back with a less bycatch and with a less burning carbon, carbon fuel or whatever, the better off we all are as an environment. So I'm really concerned going forward, but this is one that I can just see that it have a real domino effect, not just me, everybody around it. A lot of my colleagues feel the same way, but just didn't want to jump on the bandwagon or lead it like I am. Yeah. Well, it takes courage to do that. And I thank you for that courage because this isn't just, this isn't just, as you pointed out, it isn't just herring fishing. It isn't just fishing. Uh, this has, this has implications throughout really every sector of America. If, if agencies can just come in here and impose a self-monitoring, uh, you know, requirement without Congress uh, being clear on that. And so that's that's what you're asking in doing this. How can folks, if they want to know more about this case or how they can help, is there a way that they can do that? And I guess I'd ask that to both to William and, and to Ryan. Yeah. It, it, so if, if your listeners want to go to uh, causeofaction.org, altogether causeofaction.org the first mm-hmm. thing that they'll see on the page uh is a picture of of one of the fishing boats one of our clients fishing boats in this case um heading out into the into the water and they if they click on the learn more button there's a, a really great video about this about this case and the story of our fishermen bill and, and Stephen and wayne um so i would encourage them to, to check that out uh and then in terms of what they can do more generally uh I mean, if if you own a small business and you're regulated, or if you're just an interested citizen, uh, people should comment when agencies engage in notice and comment rulemaking. When they put out a proposed regulation and they invite the public to comment, that's our opportunity to to fight back. You know, ultimately, it needs to be hashed out in the courts. But during the administrative process, during that notice and comment rulemaking, people should write in and let their voice be heard and tell regulators, this is wrong. This is this is overstepping the bounds of your authority. This is going to have a tremendous economic impact. Um, If more people do that, you know, that's one small step towards checking the administrative state. Yeah, it certainly is. By the way, Cause of Action is a great organization. T- just take a, a minute here and tell us what Cause of Action Institute does. So we're a 501c3 organization. We're an oversight group. Um, we do some third-party litigation advocating for economic freedom, economic rights, uh, and individual opportunity, and really trying to check instances of of overreach Uh well, like like in this case, and we we have also done a lot of um, uh, oversight work, legal investigations uh, into cronyism and instances of abuse at agencies, and sort of leveraging the power of the Freedom of Information Act. But at the end of the day, we're we're about uh, educating people about uh, the dangers of the administrative state and the benefits of a, a free and a prosperous society that's secured with economic freedom and individual opportunity. Well, Ryan, thank you for 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 what you do and what Cause of Action does. It, it's it's incredible work and and there's lots of 
legal work on the other side uh, on some of these environmental groups and others that are out there. So, so thank you for all the great work that you do. And William, thank you for, you know, I mean, this is what this show is about. People who meet these government barriers and decide, you know what, I'm just not going to, to accept this as the way that I'll be treated by my government. And they, they stand up and they fight back. And thankfully, you have uh, partners like Cause of Action that are helping you in this fight. But this is uh, this is really important for people to understand. There's lots, and I'll just say this, you, you may not agree with this, but there's lots of herring fishermen. I'm sure there's lots of, uh, of fishermen in general, but not everybody has the courage to stand up like you did, William. And I want to thank you for that because you're fighting for them, but you're also fighting for every American. So thanks for doing that. And I appreciate you both joining me today. Thank you. Thanks, Jeff. Yeah. Okay. So if you'd like to get connected with Americans uh, for Prosperity, send me an email, jeff at americanpotential.com. If you've got any thoughts about this episode, uh, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, americanpotential.com. You can go there. And you can hit the share your story section and tell us about other stories, just like Williams, where people are fighting to, uh, to, to fighting a government barrier, trying to break that barrier. Thanks for listening to American Potential. Thank you for listening to American Potential. You may listen to more stories from Americans working every day to expand freedom and opportunity in their communities by visiting AmericanPotential.com.